Hello and welcome to another best of episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I think there's about four or five guests that we're highlighting. And again, I'd like to say a massive thank you to all the guests I've had on this series of the podcast and to all the listeners that have subscribed, rated, downloaded and told their friends and supported on social media. It's been absolutely fantastic. Again, if you want to support the podcast financially, you can do there's a link to my Ko-Fi page in the show notes, which allows you to do a one-off payment of £3 just to buy me a virtual coffee, that sort of thing. Anyway, the first guest is Mark Cope from The Candy Skins. I hope you enjoy this episode. See you in the new year. When, when you came back to the UK after sort of those initial big tours and, and promotion yeah. stuff, in, in what, what felt, had you felt changed about the music industry in, in the UK at that time? It was so fast in those days, you know, it's just like, you know, and you sort of try to keep up with it. And um, yeah, so it got a bit more, in, and then the whole, you know, Nirvana thing started just as we were about to release our second album. So we got sort of left behind. It was, you know, sort of, but then the Britpop thing happened. But it was, yeah, you feel it, it was moving so quickly in England. You know, I remember coming back and going to the, the new inn, the little pub in Oxford, and the, it was super, I think it was Supergrass's first gig, and these like three, you know like 16 year olds and we all sat there and us some radiohead and thinking what the fuck this is like i can't believe how good this band are and they were you know absolutely superb and yeah and especially in oxford because it was just everyone was pushing each other so hard everyone went to see each other and everyone's yeah. borrowing each other's equipment in oxford's you know it's it's you know it's too small to be an arsehole so the people that were <laughs> you know you, you would get pushed out and you know and I remember, you know, bands were moving down to Oxford just to get signed at the time, you know, and the pub we all went to, you know, there'd be Supergrass, Rye, Radiohead, and us and um, all the others in there. And it was, you know, it was a really good time. We'd all go back to Mark Gardner's from Ride's house and have a big party, you know, practically every night. And, you know, and then we'd listen to what we, each other was doing and stuff and play demos. And it was all about the music and, that, and people in Oxford nice to each other you know and everyone sort of educated each other you know have you heard this have you heard this so yeah, it was a very special place you know in those days when you ventured into london did, did you feel that the atmosphere changing in those sort of venues yeah it was a bit uh it wasn't as nice as in oxford it was a bit you know it's like right come on then entertain me and there's always lots of music press there and you know and people wouldn't make their own decisions you know that's why i liked america because you know people would watch the, the support band you know, they yeah. didn't need to be told to watch a band, you know. In those days, you know, sort of like people, you know, if an enemy had given a support band a really good review, everyone would be in there, you know. And they sort of, you know, had a massive impact. And that's what I think, you know, we didn't, the enemy never really got behind us or the fans of us. And I think that sort of didn't help at all. Yeah, I think it was just we weren't their type of band. I think we, you know, because we'd been with Geffen, it was like they don't need our help or they've been spotted already, you know. It's not, they hadn't spotted us in a you know little gig and sort of said you know yeah so it wasn't a victory for them if they you know we became big or you know so when, this is like a really cliche question but when did you when do you think you kind of discovered that the like the geneva footprint or sound if you like maybe a cliche question but i think it's a good one chris <laughs> because actually i don't i don't think necessarily you have to work at it because especially when you first start off because maybe your first six weeks or however many rehearsals are maybe spent combining maybe the one or two ideas that you might have managed to, to put together with uh, cover versions. In our case, a song like I Always Remember 
one of the, the first two songs I think we ever tried to rehearse together were Eight Miles High by The Birds and mm. um, Someone in the City by John Spastian. I just heard the latter actually the other day there and it gave me a little bit of a warm glow. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it, it was nice. But um, I, I think honestly, back to what I said before, in the sense of when songs like No One Speaks, when you know you had Into the Blue, these were sort of milestones along the way. They, did, they all didn't come along at once, but then suddenly there was a little bit of a rash of songs that they ended up being on further. Actually, rash sounds a little bit negative. I should maybe <laughs> rephrase that. A little run of songs. Um, so you had the likes of Further, uh, Lights of Nature Soar. And again, that was from me listening to actually more Tim Buckley than Jeff Buckley. Uh, it was more just, and Marvin Gaye and people like that, just sort of thinking, oh, I can do the falsetto as well. Yeah. Oh, what, what would it be like to try and, and, and really almost, it sounds ridiculous and absurd and couldn't lace the women's boots, but the late, great Aretha Franklin, I, quite often I hear melodies that are too high for, for me to sing naturally. Mm. So therefore, you know, it's that sort of thing. Oh, it's that ecstatic, exultant kind of quasi-spiritual kind of vibe that you get from singing high. Yeah. Was it something you consciously, I guess, really wanted to push yourself to do then was this, this falsetto, um, quite a unique voice within this kind of genre of music at the time, certainly something that was really refreshing to hear. Were you pushing yourself or pushing boundaries with yourself then all those early years, even in sort of um, Sunfish? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think maybe to start with, um, you know, you hear my speaking voice and it's, it's not a, a really bassy speaking voice, but neither is it a really high speaking voice. So mm. naturally, I was—I I would say I'm possibly a low tenor, high baritone sort of thing. I don't know, it's weird. But then you just sort of think, oh, let's just try this. And and hearing melodies that were maybe just a bit too high. And, you know, maybe also just the way Steve was, what Steve was playing or Keith was playing or, or Stuart was playing and just sort of, you know, I always remember Tranquilizer, which we actually sort of really finalised after we, we got signed. Um, mm. around about the time we got signed and I always remember Keith had kind of the beginnings of melody and some lyrics but I, I thought if I'm going to do this then it's got to be up an octave for, for it to really because it, I, I wasn't convincing in the lower octave that he was kind of approximating so therefore it was a case of okay well let's try this what does it sound like and thankfully when you're 25 26 years old and you have been singing for quite a while your voice is in quite strong shape and you know it's, it is a muscle um, and you know, if if you've done it before, you can do it again, type thing. And yeah, Mark, yeah. Morris, Mark Morris told me that again recently when I was um, sharing a bill with it, when we were sharing a bill with him. And he says, if you've done it before, you can do it again. And uh, you know, I mean, there are some people who maybe have destroyed their voices through excess or what have you. But in my case, he was right. It's just it needs to be a bit of work. It needs a bit, a bit of training. So, so to go back to your point, sorry, I'm I'm very bad at going off the point, but to to, to, to go back to your point, um, I, yeah, it was just naturally just feeling the self confidence to try things, and the same for Steve, and the same for for Douglas and and Keith to try different you know things that they were maybe influenced by as well. When did you think you might want to do this for a living then? Because obviously you, your kind of route into music was always there. There's a misconception, isn't there, that you kind of came after the MTV stuff, but you were already, the Merry Babes were already fully formed and you were knocking on people's doors trying to, you know, get yourself heard. But what, how early do you think, how early do you think you might have, you, you knew? Uh, I, well, um, 
I went, Paul and I became an item in 1985 and by 1986 we were already writing songs and that's also 1986 the year that I started doing fashion modeling um, and by 1991 we'd, we'd already been uh, the Mary Bade for five years and that's when I got the job at MTV through giving them a video of my band, the Mary Babes, to see whether they would play it on the channel, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, the route, wh when I realized I wanted to do it for a living, um, I, I think, though, you can never say I'm going to make music for a living. True, <laughs> that is, yeah. That is not something um, that, you know, it's very unlikely you're ever going to make a living out of it. But... Um, I'd always was I was always interested in being a performer um, when I was modeling, when I was doing TV presenting, and I was an artist. I was making films at school. I was painting, and and I was just you know, I was a, an attention seeker. Um, and then Paul wooed me with this poetry and these songs, these poems set to music. And it was only when I started going out with him and I heard an ex-girlfriend of his singing on one of his songs on a cassette that I got really jealous. I went, well, if she can sing, I can sing too, you know? And Paul said, really, you can sing? I went, yeah, I can sing. And that's when we started writing and that's when the Mary Babes were, were born. So it was really Paul that found, that discovered that I had musicality. I mean, I could play piano and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I never practiced, you know, I had no discipline. Um, I found I was musical. Yeah, I didn't I, know. And I think as well, the thing that I think sets you apart from maybe other bands that were coming out of the ring around the same time is, is that theatrical kind of performance? Because you, um, as a front person on stage as well, there was a, a definitely like a, not I wouldn't say an alter ego, but it was definitely something that you could see was a performance, a, a literal performance going on when you were performing. Is that a, a lot of performances, uh, the word there, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean, and I thank you for noticing it, because e even though I, I I didn't set out to be like that, I couldn't be any other way. Yeah. And you know, quite often I'd go, oh, my God, I'm making such a fool of myself. I can't <laughs> help it. I can't help it. This is how I have to be. And I always never understood why people stood still singing their songs and thinking maybe I should stand still singing my songs maybe that would be a lot cooler but then I'd get really worried go oh my god I'm being really boring I'm standing still whoa and the arms flew out and I'm like yeah, oh yeah. I'm <laughs> you know and I, inv I inhibit I inhabit the songs I inhabit the stories that Paul tells with these songs and of course in the beginning they were all Paul's songs I, I, I had no you know, I just sort of had a little, I did a little bit here and there, but I would sing all of the lyrics that he would suggest. Now, uh, you know, I go, I'm not singing that cool. I think it's not cool. It's not sexy. And mm -hmm. I want to change it to this. And, and we very much write together now. But back then I somehow managed to inhabit his ridiculously surreal lyrics that no one understood, but somehow I made them make sense with my performances. Yeah. Cause like, even, even looking at, well, from what I remember of the era as well, is your even the names of your albums and, and and the singles were different, and they were just intriguing. Uh, was that it was a real deliberate thing for you guys to just be a little bit I want to say avant garde, but was it? <laughs> do you know what I mean? It, it must have been a deliberate decision to say, right, we're not going to have "Baby I Love You" as an example for a rubbish um, uh, single thing. But there's "Diminished Clothes" and "Your Ma" and "On a Leash" and "Drink the Elixir," which was one of my favourite songs of the era, kind of thing that they all they all just have this kind of they're enchanting yeah. aren't they eerie feeling yeah. about them 
thank you. Um, when you asked, was it deliberate? Um, yes and no. So deliberate in terms of, well, we can't sing about I love you because that's just really dull. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't interest us because we're into the fall. We're into, you know, we're into um, the residents. We're into all these surreal bands. We're into why we're into, um, well, you name it, you know, yeah, yeah. odd stuff. Um, but also it wasn't deliberate because we simply couldn't, we couldn't just sing about I love you. And it was only in 1995 when I, I was um, invited onto the Help album, which there's a big hoo-ha about at the moment, of course, because it's just been re-released. Um, it was not until I sung that with Terry Hall and I sung some really soft, dreamy vocals. I was like, oh, I can do this too. This is interesting. I can sing about love as long as yeah. it's subverted somehow. So the reason we called the album The Salad Way that we released yes, uh, yesterday, last year in August, uh, it's called The Salad Way because we always have to subvert it. We just can't, we can't do it any other way. It's really boring. It's like, oh, listen, this is all very nice, but it's not a salad, is it? Right? Let me, oh, that's better. Now that's the salad way. And that's what we used to say in rehearsal studios again and again and again. It was like, okay, well, that's got to be the name of the album. Anyone, but it means something to us. Yes, this is right. So the first album, I think you're talking about Singles Bar, which uh, were in fact, was in fact three EPs put together. Um, Ireland did actually um, put it together for us and it was their idea but the three EPs that make up Singles Bar were self-released um, so the first one was Kent, the Kent EP we recorded that with uh, a gentleman called Graham Holdaway who sadly passed away last year he also demoed in his studio, the same studio um, with Seymour who became Blur um, and he basically was the one person um, after knocking on many, many doors, he was the only one that said, yeah, come on, I'll, I'll listen to your demos and maybe I can help you record some stuff and we'll do it on points and we'll do it on downtime. And yeah. And um, I had, a, I have a Dutch wife. So yeah, you know, <laughs> there was lots of, there was connections there. Yeah. There was a black connection. There was the Dutch connection. He had gone out with Sonia Christina from uh, Curved Air and we, we covered a Curved Air song for a Childline uh, charity album. Um, so anyway, that was much later, but the connection was there. So he took us in and he recorded, um, we recorded about five or six tracks there. And we, and it was his idea that we should put it out on an album on a record label that had, a, you know, something, a pun, 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 a punny name. So we called it Waldorf Records. Very good, very good, Graham. Um, and of course we didn't know later on how, much the salad punning would get annoying in the Melly Maker and the Enemy, but now you know um, we we just love it. We we take the we take the puns as far as yeah. we possibly can. Now I have I have digressed. This is what I do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, so the Kent EP and then Diminished Clothes single had three tracks on it, and then On a Leash actually was uh, Island was involved in that. Um, I think it was their first thing that they did with us. They gave us some money to do some B-sides and they also paid for the video. Um, and we were off and they thought, what we'll do is we'll put them together and we'll do it as an import 
and ex import from in Germany only to make it attractive. And I think I think it's actually my favorite salad record. It's 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 ultimate salad. It's 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 quint quintessential salad. Those songs on that album, I mean, there are, I said iconic already once, I don't want to keep using the same <laughs> word, but they're, they're being, for me, it just encapsula encapsulates just that, that era, doesn't it? I mean, the Riverboat song and 100 Mile City and uh, others, they kind of just, I don't know, I just wanted to know kind of how you felt in the room when the riffs uh, and the structure to those songs sort of came together on that record. Would you, you must have been just giddy with sort of some sort of excitement with those tracks. Yeah, I mean, when you look back on it, you think it must have been like that, but <clears throat> when you're in the process of living it and making it, coming up with the ideas, sometimes they're really quick and easy. Like um, Riverboat was super easy. Basically, Steve and I wrote that and then we got Oscar to play on it and gave Simon a cassette and say, come back with some lyrics tomorrow. And he had. And I set up a, a microphone, distorted it, and he put the vocal down. And that entire song, top to bottom, took about six hours to fit to 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 write and record and mix the you know the the rough mix of. Um, and then yeah. the songs like "Line in Your Pockets," which is an absolute classic, that went through a lot of revisions and moving around. And oh, should we put the middle eight there? Should we move it back here? So when you people listen back to the record, and occasionally when I do, as well, you think. Wow, that's amazing. But when you're in the process of making it, you can't divorce yourself from where you are to go, this is incredible. Because it's actually, you're in the middle of doing it, so you can't have that removed perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and then it's only when then you start gigging and people are singing the songs back to you and then you, so the manager says, you've been B-listed on Radio 1 and your midweek chart position is number 12. And they're like, oh my God. Yeah. You know, and that's when you, you allow yourself to be giddy. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. then obviously you had that success with the album and you you toured pretty much the world with it, didn't you, really? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. In 1996, so me and Steve were still playing with Weller, we did 247 shows. Crikey. Yeah, and on, I remember one week we'd had uh, two gigs of Weller and then three with Ocean Colour Scene and on the... Three, three, on the four days off, we, is that four or five? No, on the two days off, we recorded four B-sides and made a video. You must have been absolutely knackered. <laughs> yeah, we were actually. <laughs> it's okay when you're relatively young though. You had quite an interesting story, I think, in, in terms of how you kind of launched your career because it, it was quite a quick rise to success really for you, wasn't it, in the in 96? Um, it may appear may have appeared to have been so but it was a long process for us well, well after we'd met our, our manager at the time the manager who was our manager for the first sort of few years of the band he kind of found us at a time when we'd had we had about eight songs and we were quite good but he said like don't play in london and don't play too many gigs just get you know get your sound up to scratch get a few more songs mm. and he'll he will sort of try and create a buzz somehow, you know, mm. we made a few demos. And it wasn't until he had a few people interested from the record companies in London that we actually started gigging in London. So it was a couple of years for us of sort of sitting in the wings, so to speak, and biding our time and just sort of getting better. 
playing. You know. what were, you, were you doing then, just sort of um, booking rehearsal rooms every, living, every, every week? No, no, living on the dole. And we had a rehearsal, we had a soundproof garage in the house that we were all sharing, which we inherited from Dodgy. Yeah, Dodgy lived on the same estate as mine and, mine and Mark's grandparents. Ah. And so we kind of got to know them. And one by one, as they moved out of this house they were sharing, we sort of moved in. And it was a couple, a few years of just basically hanging out with them a lot, playing and practicing and doing other recreational activities together. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and Mark, obviously, growing up, were you um, sort of conscious that you wanted to, to do music full time? Uh, and, kind of, and if so, what kind of age do you think? Very early on, from about, I mean, for me, when it really became something I wanted to do was after seeing the Lars for the first time. Mm. So I probably would have been about 14, maybe, seeing them, supporting a band called All About Eve in Hammersmith. Yeah. And they were great, and they stuck with me. Mark sort of joined a band with a friend of, of his, and they needed a bass player. And so I just said, oh, I'll pick up the bass, I'll learn the bass. And then we met Adam, who was in another local band around that sort of time. And that's kind of when, that's the sort of the first sort of kernel of what became the Blue Tones is when me and Mark met Adam. Yeah. Did you have all um, sort of similar um, musical tastes? Were you kind of listening to the same sort of music growing up? There was a crossover, you know, that, you, know that you could put it in a Venn diagram and there's, there's a crossover. You know, we, we had our separate tastes, but there was a lot of stuff that we all liked as well mm. and there's a lot you know a lot sharing and a lot of discovery especially for me because I was the youngest and Mark and Adam had much more of a vast knowledge of music going sort of way back and they both had huge record collections and I just used to listen to theirs not I didn't have to buy anything mm. <laughs> yeah so, so you kind of had a kind of an inkling that this was something that you wanted to do full-time and, and for real um, and I yeah. guess how did you kind of uh, approach management then were you kind of uh, just looking for someone to help or did they come for you really. no, we just we just wanted we thought we were ready to go out so we like I say we had about seven or eight songs and we were playing as a lot of bands do the uh, is it the Bull and Gate yeah 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 which I think is gone now isn't it don't know anyway so we played a gig there to about 14 people and, you know, got in the car and went back home again. And I think it was, I don't know how many months later, eight months, nine months later, when we went back for a second gig there, the guy who worked the door said, oh, someone left you a phone number last time you were here. This is like before mobile phones and all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. So, so he said, someone left you a phone number, you should call him. And it was this guy who was a manager who just wanted to get in touch. So it was just chance that he happened to be there the f- when we played a London gig. Yeah. And the second time we played one months later, we got his number. <laughs> so uh, that, that happened. It's crazy how how things worked uh, before mobile phones yeah. and computers, isn't it? How you used to just you know, to give people leaflets and post-it notes and stuff. And it, but it still yeah, worked. It still worked. The problem was because we were on the dole and living in the same house and we couldn't afford our phone bills. Our phone was cut off. So no one could contact us anyway. Um, oh god it's yeah, crazy we went back there physically and the guy was like oh yeah still got this number from months ago you guys must have been quite excited to, to have had some sort of management uh, interest that early on i think at the time we were very sort of skeptical about anybody who was interested because we were worried about being ripped off yeah 
you're quite cynical then as well. Uh, um. uh, yeah, health, you know, a healthy dose of cynicism, I think, about could, everything. At that time as well, there were like, a lot of our sort of bands that we, that we liked that were sort of our contemporaries, or bands that we, that we were listening to that were current when we were sort of getting things together. Hmm. They're all on indie labels and they all, they all seem to have like complete creative freedom hmm. and, you know, didn't look like they were necessarily making tons of money, but they looked like they were having a great time and making a living. And also around that sort of time, major labels couldn't break sort of cool bands or indie bands or anything like that. As much as they tried, it just wasn't working for them. So we definitely had a, a mindset that we wanted to be sort of on an independent label, maybe even create our own label and do it that way. Definitely didn't want to go with a major. 